Now, just curious, I'm not asking for a show of hands. Just curious if anybody watched uh, Sheep Among Wolves, Part 2. Anybody watch Sheep Among Wolves, Part 2? I would have uh, liked to have. Yes. <laughs> Which means, no, I didn't. <laughs> not yet. I won't mention any names. Without mentioning any names, I did speak to one person who was somewhat reluctant to watch it. And I said, well, you know, if you are not in the right frame of mind to watch something, you'd better not watch it. Wait until you are. And uh, But I would say that I recommend it. And that, But again, it's not something that's casual viewing. It's not something just to say, well, I have to watch that. It's something that need to come and prepare yourself to watch and and but it is uh, it has a tremendous message to it and it's very informational aside from being informational those from the west who have drawn close to the church in Iran the emerging rapidly growing church in Iran their observation is that it is most like and of course they've never seen the early new testament church but we all have an idea of what the original New Testament church was like. And many of those from the West uh, observed that. It, it, this has got to be as close to the original New Testament church as anything they could imagine. And that is really something, saying something. So uh, take your time, and, and uh, but uh, it's there to be watched. Uh, they made a point of wanting to make it freely available to everyone. In the past, I think, when they've released a film... They have sold it for a period of time and then before releasing it for, uh, free. This time they determined that this was uh, something they could not sell. They must release it free. Their recommendation is for people to gather in groups and watch it in a group, whether that's in a home or a church or wherever it is, college campus, but to gather in groups and watch it in that kind of circumstance. Sheep Among Wolves, Part 2. All right, let me begin this morning with, I'm going to read and refer you to a portion of Scripture in Daniel chapter 8, and if you'd like to follow along, you can prepare. It's Daniel the 8th chapter, but before I do that, I want to share a little bit. I'm going to, um, you know, I've been, I have kept a close eye on Joel Richardson now for a number of years. I introduced you to Joel Richardson Several years ago, we have uh, listened and observed some of his presentations many times. I like him very much, and I see him as a very credible person. I like his approach to the idea of end times, Bible prophecy. I find his, um, his academic, uh, his study to be extensive. He is not abandoning uh, study, the approach to to good old-fashioned study of the scriptures before arriving at conclusions. He's not, as I would say, he's not dogmatic to a point where he has a certain point of view and refuses to have it altered by anything. He's not a kind of an approach whatsoever. So I admire his approach, enjoy his, his study and that approach, um, academic approach to it, as well as his spiritual approach to the scriptures. So I want to share you a little bit from one of his recent presentations on Iran this morning. But let me begin with this. Supposing before you went to sleep at night there was a weather forecast and 
the weather forecast said that there was going to be high winds, a little bit like we had last night maybe, high winds developing overnight. Along with those high winds was coming in a cold front and you're going to have snow, significant amounts of snow. High winds and snow coming in overnight. And you put your head down on your pillow. And cried. <laughs> and, and while you were crying, <laughs> you made this observation. You said things are going to look very different in the morning. Things are going to look very different in the morning. Anything that isn't tied down is likely going to be in a different location. Things that are right side up now may be upside down then. Things are going to look different. There's going to be white on the ground. There's going to be drifts. Things are going to look very different in the morning. And I think we're in a, we're, this analogy is appropriate because I mentioned several places in the world. And the first place I'd like to mention is Saudi Arabia. What is that going to look like? Can I say in the morning? There's some tremendous upheaval and change and developments and alliances and circumstances that are occurring now with Saudi Arabia. It's uh, very obvious that there is a association, if you like, with Israel that is perplexing. It's as if there is a kind of an alliance that's occurring Saudi Arabia aligning itself with countries like Israel, Egypt, United States, the present administration in the United States of America. Sending right now this morning, I believe we read that they're sending 3,000 troops to Saudi Arabia. At the same time as sending 3,000 troops to Saudi Arabia, they have withdrawn their presence in northern Syria uh, from this close alliance we've had for many years with the Kurds. And a lot of people are scratching their heads and trying to figure out what does this mean. And many are alarmed by these developments. So what's that going to look like? What about Iran? What is Iran going to look like in the morning? Because there's coming and there already we see this tremendous upheaval. Turkey and the Kurds. What's happening in there? What's happening now with this? Now we understand the Kurd, the Kurdish people who don't have... Basically, there, there is Kurdistan, as you know, but the Kurdish people do not really have a state, geographical location. They live in parts of various other countries. So after the First World War, when all these lines were drawn, then they were left out, basically, as a nation state. But they live in all these different countries. And they, their ethnic background goes back to the Medes, you know, the Medes and the Persians. And the Kurdish people go back, trace them, their roots all the way back to the Medes. So now Turkey is going in guns blazing to a territory occupied by Kurds. They treat the Turks treat the Kurdish people as terrorists. Terrorists. And so uh, they are going in and they're dislocating the Kurds from northern Syria by tremendous force. And President Donald Trump has drawn his people out and many are suggesting that the President of the United States has given the Turkish leader the green light to go ahead and occupy. The, the Turks are saying, well, afterwards, after we, after we uh, 
drive everybody, remove everybody, force everyone out of this area, then we're going to use this area for dislodged Syrians to be able to resettle. Well, is that what's going to happen? We don't know. What's it going to look like in the morning? This is the idea. Because there's tremendous, um, tremendous circumstance and forceful events that are occurring. You know, it's kind of interesting. I find the IDF, the uh, Israeli Defense Forces, are asking their government to give some assistance to the Kurds. You see, there are many people, reasonable people in the world, who see the Kurdish people as the um, most dedicated fighters against ISIS over the last number of years. And they were on the ground, very courageous people. You see, the women fight along with the men. You know that in the Kurds? Some of the women are very ferocious, uh, battle-hardened warriors. And they have done a great deal to overcome and remove uh, ISIS from its geographical, the geography that it uh, controlled for a number of months. You'll find that it's kind of perplexing. I read a quote just recently that President Trump was quoted as saying, and I like to be very careful about what I say because I don't always know if the quotes are accurate and don't always know the context of the quotes. And But the quote had something to do with the fact that uh, the Kurds didn't help the uh, United States in all their battles in the past. And, for example, they didn't help us on D-Day. Well, I, I can't imagine the president actually saying that, that we're not obliged to assist the Kurds in this present moment, even though we've worked very closely with them on the battlefield for a few years that we would just sort of leave the area and leave them to the onslaught of the, Turk, of the Turks doesn't make any sense to me if that's what's happening. But again, I don't pre pretend to know all the details and all the facts, but it appears on the surface to be completely illogical and to draw a comparison, well, they weren't with us in D-Day. Well, my, my, that's a very different time and place and set of circumstances. D-Day... So if that's what's happening, why is it happening? So there's all of these different forces and, and uh, events that are occurring with tremendous force and, and uh, rapidity. So what's that all going to look like going forward? What's going to happen with the Kurds and with whom will they develop some kind of associations now? Who will they ally themselves with? Well... I think reasonable people will say, will they align themselves with uh, Iran? Will they align themselves with Russia? You'd have to say since Russia is a, is a supporter of Syria and Iran is a supporter of Syria, <laughs> then there's, there's a kind of alliance between Russia and Iran, if you like. So you have all these alliances beginning to form, and this is the point. And all this is percolating and these forces are occurring and people are making decisions and some of these decisions are kind of difficult to follow. Why are they doing what they're doing? And let me say this, with absolute certainty, all of these decisions, without regard to who is making them, are a part of forcing and maneuvering and arranging circumstance so that it will 
as we go closer and closer into the future here, just up ahead, more quickly as we travel, that the circumstances in the future will be exactly as the Hebrew prophets said they would be. And this will all occur because of the decisions made by governments, entities, known and unknown, deliberate and not deliberate, for all kinds of different reasons. And yet we're moving so quickly now, you can tell that we're moving more quickly. You look out the window and you can tell we're moving rather rapidly. When you see yourself moving rapidly, you know you're going to get to the destination more quickly than otherwise you would. That's the feeling we have. That's what's happening. So what's it going to look like in the morning? That's the question. What's it going to all look like in the morning? So, Do we have all the answers to all these questions? We have no, we don't. And it's not good for us to become so dogmatic about certain things. There are other things that we know with absolute certainty. Let's be dogmatic about those. But let's not be dogmatic about things that we don't know with absolute certainty. What's going to look like in Israel? in the morning. What's happening in Israel? They can't form a government. They're having very uh, tremendous difficulty in even forming an alliance as a government. What's going to happen with Benjamin Netanyahu? What's going to happen with him? Is he going to stay on or is he going to fall? And as he falls, after he falls, is he going to be prosecuted and charged with criminal offenses? You know, what's, what's, what's happening in Israel? What will happen with regards to the United States? What's happening in the United States? What's happening? What's it going to look like in the morning? This is, of, I approach this very cautiously because I approach this as a neighbor, very close neighbor. I'm looking at the United States right now out the window. So I approach it as a neighbor, but I'm not part of the family. Some of you are. And I'm growing up there. But I have not, and I approach it as a neighbor. But I approach it as a neighbor who knows that my country is affected tremendously by what happens within the United States of America, and so are all the nations in the world. Because it is the, right now, perhaps the sole superpower. Some would perhaps say that China is rapidly reaching that stage. It seems strange. I don't want to take too much time in this kind of introduction, but it seems very strange to me. I remember when President Barack Obama, when he became President of the United States, and I'm saying these things as a neighbor looking over the fence. I said uh, within myself, I said, oh boy, this is going to be really great for the United States of America, and what's good for America is going to be good for the world. It's kind of a simple philosophy, but I think it's good. I think it's right. I think that if, to the extent the United States of America prospers and succeeds and moves forward in an intelligent, reasonable way, I think that's good for the world. So here you had President Obama, and I read a little bit about his background and some of the books that he wrote, and I knew that he, you know, his mother was white and his father was black. And I said to myself, and many others said the same thing, what a perfect, he's very intelligent, and uh, he had a, a likable persona and articulate. He could hold the attention of an audience. All those things. So I saw him as a bridge. I said, this man is perfectly suited 
to be a bridge and you'd be able to bring people from different sides kind of together. Did that happen? No, it didn't happen. In fact, it didn't happen and the way in which it did not happen almost appeared to an observer neighbor looking over the back fence as calculated not to do it. And I said, you have every opportunity to do that. And yet, did it happen? No, it didn't happen. It made it worse and became more and more fragmented. And he said basically to some of his people who could have been very close associates, well, elections have consequences, you know. Like, I won. You lost. <laughs> Get over it. I'm in charge because I won. I mean, not the best approach to take if you're trying to bring people together. So it appeared to me to be people were not brought together. There was further... Uh, Separation that began to occur within the nation, which is not good for all of us as neighbors. And it seemed to be calculated. Now, I can't say intentional because I can't read somebody else's heart and mind. Calculated is a little different word. President Donald Trump came along and he's a businessman. He's not a politician. That idea is very attractive to many people. And we all have our hopes high. And I say to myself, my, this is a great opportunity for this businessman to grow into the office of the President of the United States. He'll grow into this office. And won't that be good? If the nation prospers, the United States prospers, then the whole world will prosper. He'll be able to be a barrier to some of this radical thinking and ideology that is taking over the country, trying to change the fabric of the nation. Oh, this is horrible, I said, as a neighbor looking over the back fence. And yet things are becoming more divided than ever. And it appears to the neighbor looking over the back fence as if it's calculated. Because some of these things that happen appear calculated to divide rather than to bring together. It seems as if it's a war. It seems as if it's a civil war. What's going to look like? What's it going to look like in the morning? What's it going to look like in the morning? What's it going to look like in November, the latter part of November, 2020? What's it going to look like then? And what's it going to look like to Israel when the time comes when the interest of the United States of America may not align itself exactly with the interest of the state of Israel? What's going to happen then? And is somebody going to stand up and say, well, they didn't fight with us on D-Day, so therefore we don't need to stand with them now. Some absurd statement such as that. You say, could that happen? I'm just asking questions right now. What's it going to look like in the morning? Because Joel Richardson brings a kind of a unique interpretation, I would say, presentation of Daniel chapter 8. And I would like to... Uh, have him present that for us this morning. But let me go with you to Daniel chapter 8 and just go through the chapter a little bit here. Daniel is in Persia. And that's Iran today. Will there be a realliance between the Medes and the Persians? These are questions. What this, what's this going to look like? But there's upheaval and wherever you have upheaval, you know there's going to be change in circumstance. 
is what dynamite does. You blow things up with dynamite and it's going to look different after than it does before. And so it was in the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, Daniel had a vision, and he was in the city of Susa, and it was the province of Elam. And he said in, in the vision he saw a ram. It was a ram standing beside the canal. He had two horns. One horn was longer than the other of this ram. And the longer one came up after the shorter one. And he saw the ram charging to the west, to the north, and to the south. And so this ram was expanding its power and exercising its power. And he said um, that no animal could stand against him. And there was no rescue from his power. And he did whatever he wanted and became great. And we're going to see in Daniel chapter 8 that all this has to do with the end times and the end of the age. And some say this is already fulfilled in the ancient world and with the Medes and the Persians and the, and the Greeks and Al- Alexander the Great, and this is all fulfilled in those people. And others say, well, there's a, there's, a, there's a type of it fulfilled in them, but the antitype or the big picture fulfillment will be at the very end of the age. And others say, all of this has per- to do with the end of the age. Just different ways of thinking and looking at it. Joel Richardson will fall among the latter group that says he has come to believe, although he's not dogmatic about it, that it has to do with a fulfillment at the very end of the age. So for a period of time, this ram is going to have its way. If this ram represents Iran at the end of the age, if that's what this is, then it means that Iran is going to go on the attack and it's going to begin to assault neighboring nations and as nobody's going to be able to rescue the neighboring nations from its influence and from its power. Then in the vision he said he saw a male goat. Now the male goat comes after after this ram has had opportunity to devastate surrounding neighbors. And what's going to happen then? Will Israel be one of those neighbors? See these are the questions. So the he-goat appears coming from the west and the he-goat comes and this he-goat has a prominent horn between its eyes. And this he-goat now, coming from the west, attacks this ram, overcomes the ram, tramples the ram down into the ground. He says, I saw this he-goat approach the ram infuriated with him. He struck the ram, shattering his two horns the ram was not strong enough to stand against him. The goat threw him, to, threw him to the ground and trampled him. And there was no one to rescue the ram from his power. If the ram is Iran, and if this happens at the end of the age, then this means Iran is going to be trampled. So what's this going to look like in the morning? And he says in, the, in this vision he had, the goat became a great power. But as he came to the ultimate uh, the height of his power, it says the large horn was shattered. And in the place of the large horn, there came up four other horns. And from one of those four came a little horn. Now listen to the language from this little horn. 
It says, From one of them a little horn emerged and grew extensively towards the south and the east and towards the beautiful land. Is that Israel? It grew as high as the heavenly host and made some of the stars and some of the hosts fall to the earth and trampled them. This is something not just physical, but this is also spiritual. It made itself great, even up to the prince of the host. It removed his daily sacrifice and overthrew the place of his sanctuary. Is this an assault against Jerusalem and the place of the covenants that God has made with his people in Jerusalem? Is this what this is? It says, because of rebellion, a host together with the daily sacrifice will be given over. The horn will throw truth to the ground and will be successful in whatever it does. Does this mean that Israel will suffer devastation? Many don't believe that. Many believe that Israel is the apple of God's eye and God's going to protect Israel and the enemy will come up against it, but God will, go to, God will destroy the enemy right away. And Israel will not undergo a period of devastation. Others don't believe that. What's it going to look like in the morning? He said, Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the speaker, How long will the events of this vision last? The daily sacrifice, the rebellion that makes desolate, abomination of desolation in the King James, and the giving over of the sanctuary and of the host to be trampled. And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, 2,300 days, and then the sanctuary will be restored. Now comes the interpretation. Daniel has observed the vision, and he's searching for an answer, and he has a vision in which Gabriel comes to him, the angel Gabriel. Daniel's terrified and falls down and Gabriel raises him up and begins to talk to him. Gabriel says, I'm here to tell you, in verse 19, I'm here to tell you what will happen at this conclusion of the time of wrath because it refers to the appointed time of the end. The end. Does this mean that this has to do with the, the actually end of the age? Does it mean the end of the age? See, all these things are going to become very clear to us as we go forward. They're not as clear now as we perhaps would like them to be. But there are some things that are crystal clear. Let's keep the things that are crystal clear, crystal clear. And let's be very humble before the Lord and ask for the revelation of his word and spirit to show us and add definition to what the other things are. But let's be ready because we're moving and we're moving fast. Let's be ready. Let's be ready. The most important thing to us right now is evangelism. It's the salvation of souls. And it's our own spiritual welfare to be in a position where the Lord can use us by His Spirit. What good is evangelism if we can't be used effectively in it? Right? Evangelism, evangelism is the key. All roads lead there to be used by the, by, the, by the Spirit of the Lord and to present the Word of the Lord. And we need to be prepared and equipped. So Daniel, uh, Gabriel said, I'm here to tell you what will happen at the end. And this is all appointed for the time of the end, he said. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. Okay, this is guaranteed. This is it. 
It's Media and Persia. What does this have to do with the Kurds at the end time? I'm asking questions. What's that going to look like in the morning? And could it be possible that a decision like this that seems strange and difficult to understand could actually find itself being a significant part of the alliance of nations in the movement of the Kurds, the Kurdish people, over to closer alliance even with uh, Russia and with Iran. Is that, is that possible? It's possible. Do I know exactly? No, I don't. No, I don't. I'm very careful here, right? I think we all should be careful here. But that could be. Because there's a high wind coming in overnight. And this high wind is changing everything so that in the morning things are going to look so much different from the way they look now. And the changes can only be explained by the high wind that comes in. The movement of the wind. And there are spiritual forces that are released, being released into the earth that are accomplishing these kinds of changes. Which are foreknown by God. Which the Hebrew prophets actually wrote about but not knowing themselves exactly what they meant. Isn't that amazing? Okay, so he went on. He said, The shaggy goat represents the king of Greece. The large horn between his eyes represents the first king. Four horns that took the place of the shattered horn represent four kingdoms. Is this uh, Turkey? Is this Turkey and other nations allied with them? Is that what this is? He says they will rise from that nation but without its power. Near the end of their kingdom, kingdoms when the rebels have reached the full measure of their sin, an insolent king skilled in intrigue. Now this is most uh, Bible prophecy teachers, students of Bible prophecy agree that this is referring to the Antichrist at the end of the age. Even though there's some variation in interpretation among them, this is him. It says his power will be great, but it will not be his own. He will cause terrible destruction and succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy, listen to this, he will destroy the powerful along with the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper through his cunning and by his influence, and in his own mind he will make himself great. He will destroy many in a time of peace. He will even stand against the prince of the prince of princes. Yet he will be shattered. He will be shattered, but not by human hands. What does that tell you? That tells us a great deal. Is this the return of Messiah that does this? Is that what shatters him? Is this the return of Jesus that shatters him? What's this going to look like in the morning? The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true. Now you must seal up the vision, Daniel, because it refers to many days in the future. I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for days. This had a fear. Daniel was no weak person. I mean, Daniel, you know how strong Daniel was. This absolutely just turned Daniel inside out. 
He was sick for many days, for several days, and then I got up and went about the king's business. He's in Persia, right? He said, I was greatly disturbed by the vision and could not understand it. I couldn't understand it. Well, there's a lot of different understandings of it. I'll present to you now Joel Richardson's presentation, and he will focus largely on this chapter in Daniel in his understanding of this presentation. All right, Pat. Now, this week's episode, I'm standing here right now in absolutely beautiful, stunningly beautiful Iraqi Kurdistan. But I want to talk today just about some of the potential prophetic implications. Now, uh, we're here. It's June of 2019. First time I was up in this region was actually January 2015. So it was cold. We've got beautiful weather right now. Uh, January was really cold. And sat up in a friend's uh, loft up at the top of their house and we opened the Bible up and looked at Daniel 8. Um, I'm convinced back then, again, this is over four years ago, I'm convinced today as much as I was back then that Daniel 8 is a critical chapter that the church needs to understand if we're to understand what's unfolding in the region. I'm not going to go through the whole passage, uh, but I'd encourage you to open it up now. Briefly, what Daniel 8, the, the, the vision of Daniel 8 is, Daniel's talking about, he sees two beasts. Okay, the first one is a two-horned ram. One of the horns is longer than the other. And one ram, this ram is coming from the area of Persia. And it fights out into the larger Middle East. Okay, this is, it's using a metaphor of a beast, but it's talking about an empire. It's talking about a kingdom. And this beast butts out into this whole region, modern-day Iraq, modern-day Syria, Lebanon, I mean, just the whole heart of the Middle East, modern-day Israel. Uh, and then it says that, you know, it was successful in all it did. No one could withstand its power. I mean, it crushed it. It was victorious. I always use the example of the, the fighter, the boxer that comes along. No one can beat this guy until someone comes along and beats him. Man, no one can beat this guy. And so as the vision proceeds, then you have, it says, from the west, specifically from the area in the Hebrew is Yavan, comes a prominent horned goat. So the goat comes from the west, again, specifically Yavan. Now, most translations will say that's Greece. They'll translate Yavan as Greece. And that's accurate. Uh, later, uh, the Alexandrian empire became known as Yavan, but originally Yavan was referring to the area, we could also say Ionia. It was Western Asia Minor, that's Turkey, as well as modern-day Greece and some of those islands. So sort of spanned that whole area on both sides, the coasts, the coastlands of Turkey as well as Greece, and, and actually a whole Western province of modern-day Turkey. So if we're just talking region, it's important to say that the goat comes from the region of Turkey and Greece. Now, virtually every commentator that you read, every commentary that you open up, Christian commentary, is going to say that what this vision is talking about is the ancient Medo-Persian. They would say the two horns on the ram represent Media and Persia um, as they invaded the Middle East. And then later, Alexander the Great comes from Europe, comes from Macedonia, and he conquers the uh, Medo-Persian Empire. And they say, that's what this vision is talking about. But here's the problem. Okay, then the angel Gabriel comes along and he says to Daniel, you can look at it, he makes 
three statements. He says, Daniel, listen to me. I'm about to explain to you what is going to take place in the last days. Okay, he says, this vision concerns the last days. Daniel passes out, falls down into a deep sleep. Gabriel touches him, picks him up, and goes, Daniel, listen to me. Because the vision concerns, he repeats himself, he reiterates, concerns the time of the end. And then he says, for it concerns the final period of indignation. So first of all, Gabriel identifies the vision as an end-time prophecy. So here's the question for interpreters is, does the vision begin with the events in history of Medo-Persia and Alexander the Great, and then sort of bleed into as a foreshadow, bleed into and begin and shift and begin speaking about the last days? Because then what happens is when this, this prominent horned, this singular horned, this unicorn goat defeats the ram, okay, again, Alexander the Great, then the prominent horn is broken off. They say, well, that was Alexander the Great. And then in place of the singular horn comes four horns. So they say, well, these are the Diadochi. These are the successors to Alexander the Great. And they, go, they look in history. They say it was Lysimachus, Cassander, Ptolemy, and Seleucus. They go, this, Alexander's four generals, you know, this happened in history. We know it. Um, and then it says, but out of one of these, that would be the Seleucid, comes a little horn. And they say, well, that was... Antiochus Epiphanes. And Antiochus Epiphanes was a foreshadow, a type of the Antichrist. Thus, when Gabriel says the vision concerns the time of the end, it concerns the end times, they, they say in the events, uh, the historical events of Antiochus Epiphanes, they say that was a prelude. It was a, it was a picture, it was a foreshadow of the Antichrist. Okay, so that's the most common futurist evangelical Christian interpretation. And what I suggested 15 years ago, and what I still think is a very solid option. Now, let me say this. I am not 100% convinced that this is the case. But I think it's a very solid interpretation. And let me say this. Um, I sort of came to this conclusion through reading, well, through there's a few different ways. It's sort of a merging of a few things in terms of my studies. But one of them is a book by Mark Davidson called um, Daniel Revisited. I sell it on my website. I'd encourage you to get a copy if you've never read it. It's really worth the read. Now, let me say this. I don't agree with all of Mark's interpretations. I don't agree with his interpretation of Daniel 7. I won't get into it, exactly what that means. I don't agree with a handful of his interpretations, but I think his interpretation of Daniel 8 is worth consideration. Okay? So if you haven't read that book, then go ahead and get it. But let me just say this. What we're talking about is what I call the consistent futurist interpretation of Daniel 8, which means this, is that when Gabriel says to Daniel, Daniel, this vision concerns the time of the end, he's not talking about events in history that bleed into the last days, that sort of just are a, a, a prelude, but that the entire vision itself is actually an end-time prophecy. And its primary focus is not the Medo-Persian Empire, and Alexander the Great, and Antiochus Epiphanes. Rather, what he's talking about, first of all, is an Iranian invasion of the Middle East, followed by a Turkish response. Now, this is in keeping with the actual regions and the language of what Gabriel then goes on to interpret and explain the vision to Daniel. Um, it's in keeping with all of that language. And then whoever the, the leader of this Turkish response, and it calls him, by the way, the first king of the Avon, whoever that is, he dies. Shortly after the invasion, he dies. And then this, we'll call it a new Turkey. It breaks up into four 
And out of one of these sections rises the person that we would call, as Christians, the Antichrist. So if indeed this is the case, then when we see events right now, when we see tension with Iran, when we see Iran potentially looking to uh, you know, stop, stop the flow of oil, I think it's about a quarter to a third of the world's oil flows through the Gulf of Hormuz. Uh, in an attempt to collapse the global economy and this sort of thing, we go, okay, this is something we should pay attention to. We don't say, this is that. I always want to be careful about jumping the gun. We don't say, this is that. We say, could this be that? Let's look at it in a responsible way. Let's pay attention. Let's see if these things begin to unfold. And if so, we need to be watchful and paying attention. We need to be so careful as Christians not to be the boy that cries wolf. This is that, this is that, this is that. Because most often it's not that. But sometimes world events align with biblical prophecy, and when they do, when those the contours of the mountains, as they were envisioned by the biblical prophets, begin to align with the contours of what we see today in the news, in the geopolitical contours of the earth, and they begin to align, we go, okay, let's pay attention. We need to be responsible. So that said, here are a few of the reasons why I think a consistent futurist interpretation of Daniel 8 is worth considering. First of all, Again, Gabriel said, in the interpretation, he said the vision is about the end times three times. We should pay attention to what Gabriel had to say. Second of all, and I challenge anyone to really do the study, to do the work, to look into this. Um, there's a few great books out there. One is called Ghost on the Throne. Um, I've got four great books that trace the history of the Alexandrian Empire after Alexander died. And it traces the wars of the successors, the wars between the Diadochi. And here's the thing. After Alexander died, there were not four divisions of his empire. Initially, there were like 25, 26. And then after a few years, it came down to where there were five. And there were five major divisions, as well as a handful of other smaller divisions, for well over 20 years. It was like 22-some-odd years before one of these generals finally died, and then it was down to four. But here's the thing, and this is after what's called the Battle of Ipsus. This is like 23 years after Alexander dies. And a guy named Antigonus got killed. Antigonus Monothalmus, they called him. He was Antigonus the One-Eyed. Um, because he, Not because he only had one eye, because he lost one eye. Uh, he's kind of like John Wayne in the movie True Grit. He was much older than all the other guys. He was overweight. He had one eye, but he ran circles around them militarily, strategically. He's just a great character. But the point is this, is that the prophecy says after the singular horn is broken off, four come up. That is not what happened in history. It's important because there were, it was not just Lysimachus, Cassander, Ptolemy, and Seleucus. It was those four and Antigonus. And it was 22, 23 years until Antigonus, who was the best of all of them, by the way. Why does he get left out of most of the commentaries? Because Christians are essentially assuming that it's historical and then sort of trying to shoehorn history into fit with what they read in Daniel, but that's not accurate. So after Antigonus got killed, you go, okay, well, now we're down to four. The problem is Antigonus' son, Demetrius, took over another area. There were still five. There were still five. And it was not for another few years until Cassander got killed that you could sort of arguably say, now there was four. The problem is, by that time, there were really only two major regional powers. And that was the Seleucid, or the Seleucid dynasty in the north, that's Turkey, Syria, Iraq, that whole northern swatch of the Middle East, as well as the Ptolemaic, the Egyptian in the south. So here's my point. 
is that the events of history don't line up precisely with what we read in Daniel. And I think the Bible is precise. I think it's very specific. I think it's not just like, well, four, five, it's close enough. So that there also gives us hints that maybe what it's talking about, the whole prophecy, not just the tail end about Antiochus, all of it is talking about end time events. What else? This is interesting. It says the prominent horn on the goat is the first king of Yvonne. So let's just say that means the first king of Greece. The problem is Alexander the Great was not the first king of Greece. It doesn't work. He was like something like the 53rd king, or I I don't know the exact number, something like this, the 53rd king of Macedonia. And so unless you want to just sort of rewrite all of these things and say Greece never existed until after Alexander invaded the Middle East, which is not accurate, um, again, there's another part of the prophecy that doesn't really align with history. So we start seeing some of these problems when we actually do the research, Um, when we actually work through the events of history. We go, it doesn't quite line up. So here's the point is that, again, we're in this moment of tensions. It's worth watching. I always encourage caution. Uh, I say, don't jump, you know, and and I say, let's look at and let's explore as responsible expositors of the Scripture, studying history, doing our research. Let's look at these things and say, could this be it? And if so, what should we expect to see next? What should we expect to see next? And essentially, it would be a massive Iranian invasion of this whole area, followed by a Turkish response, the death of the prominent leader of Turkey, followed by the split of the Turkish, this new Turkey, if we'll call it that, this new Ottoman Empire, into four, out of which one of these four would come the Antichrist. So if that's the case, we have one of the most precise countdowns, if you will, to the Antichrist. It's, it's incredible. Um, we should be paying attention to all these things. That said, I, I'm convinced that it's a good, solid option. I'm not 100% convinced. It's possible that all Gabriel meant is that it bleeds into the last days and that it is it is just kind of using looser language. And, and although there were five, it really just meant four. And, you know, I go, I don't think that's what it's saying, but it's possible. We need to be so careful when it comes to future speculative eschatology to think that we have it all figured out. We need to come to these things with humility. I tell you, it's very rare to see this within the world of Bible prophecy. Everybody loves to sort of act like they know the future. And guys, we don't know the future. You don't know the future. I don't know the future. The best that we can do is peer into his word, study, pay attention, and watch. Now, that said, all of this said, as followers of Jesus, as students of the scripture, our primary focus is not just the unfolding of biblical prophecy. Our primary focus is the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Okay, so you look out right now, you look at all these things, the natural human response is to say, well, wait a minute, Joel, if there's potentially a war about to break out, you say just this morning there were some Americans that were attacked not too far from you, why are you there? The natural human propensity is to say we need to withdraw, we need to uh, protect ourselves, we need to enter into a mode of of protectionism. How can I protect myself, my family, my assets, etc.? Because we focus on what Satan is doing. Satan's always up to something. But guys, God is always up to something, and he's ten steps ahead of Satan. And so as believers, our primary focus is not like, let's just talk biblical prophecy, what's unfolding, let's get a shiver up our spine, this sort of thing. That stuff's important. But the main thing that we need to be focused on is saying behind all of this, what is God doing? And the bottom line is, guys, right over here in Iran, Iran's trying to take over the whole region, and right under the regime's nose, the Iranian church is growing faster than at any time in human history. And I've had 
pastor on multiple times on the show that is part of that movement. It's growing in, in um, Afghanistan, in Iran, and throughout this whole region. The church is exploding. The fastest growing church in the world. It's just, by the way, Iran, just, I'm looking at these mountains. I'll edit in some pictures of the mountains. It's kind of a hazy day today. Just over this mountain that I'm looking at, that's the Iranian border. It's not far from here at all. Just this way is the Turkish border. We're, we're right up here, sort of at the, the, the three corners. Kurdistan, Iran and Turkey. I mean, this is like heart of the Middle East. This is the the epicenter of where the principalities of Persia and Yavan are clashing for the control of this whole region. But the bottom line is, if God's doing all of these amazing things, I want to be part of it. I, this is where I want to be. And so, as Christians, as the, the the closer that we approach the times of chaos, war, we need to be focusing more on what God is doing. And then constantly asking ourselves, and this is what I always want to encourage anyone that listens to me, anyone that watches these programs, I want to encourage you all, constantly be asking the Lord, Lord, what are you doing? And oftentimes it requires a little bit of a peek behind the curtain, you know, because everybody loves to focus on the negative and not the positive. We should be focused much more on the positive. And then say this, Lord, where is the opportunity? Where is the divine gospel opportunity? How can I participate? How can I support what you are already doing? So I'm up here right now with FAI, Frontier Alliance International, uh, working throughout this whole area doing humanitarian and gospel work. And uh, it's a blessing, it's a privilege for me to partner with FAI. I always encourage any of my viewers, um, if you want to partner with what the Lord is doing throughout this area, you want to partner, you can partner with FAI. If you want to partner with GCM, the underground church movement, you can partner with GCM. You can pray, you can connect with them on a relational level, you can get personally involved, you can support them financially. There's a lot of different ways that you can connect. These are um, two of my dearest friends, and some of, it's my family. And so I love to connect the heart of my hearts with those of you that are my friends and viewers, and uh, because I love to pull everybody into things that God is doing in the earth. Amen? So just, I just wanted to do a, sort of a quick uh, quick little uh, update, overview, since I'm here in beautiful Iraqi Kurdistan. I look forward to seeing you all next time. Until then, I'm Joel Richardson. This is The Underground. Just before we dismiss, uh, maybe I could just add another thought. One of the things that first um, kind of raised my attention when I heard about Sheep Among Wolves Part 2 was when they began to talk about, in Iran, for example, this emergent, emerging church in Iran, and how it's led primarily by women. And I thought, like, you know, I'm, 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 not, I'm not against women, but I, I know there's a movement in the West that I consider to be secular, humanistic, that has an evil spiritual base behind it, to advance feminism and a view of feminism that I think is not healthy, not conducive to biblical understanding. It's a rebellious attitude and so on. And I thought, I hope this is not something that's disguised, you know, dressed up, that's not good and so on. It's just thoughts in my mind. Then as I looked at it further and more deeply and a little bit more like that, one of the things that really... uh, And I'll just mention this to you. One of the things that really kind of added to my thinking on this was that in Iran, the country of Iran, it says the vast majority of women 
females are abused. What? The vast majority of women in Iran are abused. They don't have rights. But not only that, they are abused, sexually abused, from little children, sometimes by members of their own family, including their fathers and uncles and so on. This is the kind of thing that some people don't want to watch this film because they don't want to hear about this because it's, it's heavy to hear. But it's the reality. Now you have in that where the emerging, the emerging church then, there is this a tremendous victory, spiritual victory, that is happening in the lives of women. And overcoming all that opposition and satanic abuse that they have suffered, and overcoming that and rising up in the name and the person relationship with Jesus and walking in victory. Walking in tremendous victory. And, and the result of the victory within that they walk in is to be leadership in the church. Which is just, I mean, you think of the number of ladies that you know in your own families who were uh, instrumental in your spiritual journey and pilgrimage. I can see more women who were as influential in my life in the, in the past as men. Sometimes the women will be more, in certain ways, more influential than men will be in your life. That's what's happening in Iran. And then, say, then they said, but don't think that this is a feminism movement like you have in the West. It's not like that. It doesn't have the same spirit to it as that at all. These women are very um, obedient, not obedient, but submissive and respectful of their husbands because they read in the scripture. They read in the Bible that the, they are to submit themselves uh, to their husbands. And they do. But at the same time, they are fearless when it comes to the truth that they also read in the scriptures, the way that they should live and conduct themselves in this world. And the fruit of that is tremendous um, leadership in the spirit. And remember now that the Christian community in Iran is not this pyramid structure. It's not a structure where you have a bunch of people leading at the top of the pyramid and their word is filtering down to everybody down underneath. It's not like that. So I think it would be uh, it's good to mention that, that what I get back after I look into this a little more is not a concerning idea that the same kind of humanistic movement that exists in the West is manifesting itself in Iran because that appears not to be the case at all. Nothing could be further from that. That's not the way it is. So, in any event, the Lord bless you and uh, and enjoy your... I don't know how many are staying for lunch today, I guess. I, I don't know. But whoever is, enjoy your meal and fellowship together. Amen. <laughs>